Stay tuned. Eastside Radio, 89.7 FM. John Mark, and welcome back to our third show in the series. We've covered the known and the unknown. And now we're going to delve into the unknowable. I must admit, it wasn't the easiest show to create content for. It's a curly one. One might even go so far as to say it was unknowable. (laughs) Yeah, it's not something we sit around thinking about all the time. I went to the definition in the internet again, in the internet dictionaries. Hit us with it. Okay. There were three here. The first one is not knowable, which is kind of obvious. The second one is uh, something that is unknowable, so that refers to a thing or an object. The third one is the postulate reality lying behind all phenomena but not cognizable by any of the processes by which the mind cognizes phenomenal objects. So that speaks to perception beyond our perception or experience. John and I actually watched um, a movie very recently, a real classic, My Dinner with Andre, and it's uh, turning 40 this uh this year and you know there are a couple of guys just like us really they just sit around chatting having these uh philosophical kind of conversations we've got a real short clip from the film we live in this dream world because we do so many things every day that affect us in ways that somehow we're just not aware of yeah i really enjoyed that film it was uh two guys jamming on some um getting down to the nitty-gritty of some fundamental philosophical questions uh, when it comes to our existence. And it's kind of like, uh, what are we and where are we and what is this all about? And uh, they were kind of unpacking this stuff by telling stories. Yeah, and in that clip, uh, the Wally, the Wallace Shawn character, he refers to walking around in in a dream world without really, you know, understanding uh, what's behind it. I mean, did you resonate with with this kind of dialogue in it, John? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I have to catch myself, um, or I do catch myself often, um, off with the pixies, <laughs> running on automatic and really missing the the um, the moments are passing mm. me by mm. and I'm not, uh, I'm not in the present because the, um, the present really is all we have. The, the past... Um, is kind of unknowable. We have this thing called memory that we rely on to um, construct our narrative about what we are and where we are. But um, it's quite obvious that um, 
our memories are uh, not very reliable recording of what actually happened because we all have this different experience, this uh, unique perspective or position. Uh, not very useful in court cases because um, two people can witness the same events and see completely different things. Mm, that's right. Personal accounts are considered um, ad- often admissible, right, in that kind of situation? Yeah, it's like we're all in our own little universe, uh, each of us. So that idea of the multiverse resonates here because we're actually all living in our own little world and we can't get to anybody else's. And this makes me think of that film, uh, Being John Malkovich, where somebody found a portal into his... <laughs> into his head and could actually experience uh, part of his experiences. Um, That was a very strange movie and I think it got a lot of people thinking about um, our unique uh, perspective. Yeah, that's right. And so within like uh, categorizing the unknown, one of the things that, that I guess we're speculating is unknowable is to know uh, fully what it's like to uh, be in someone else's shoes. And you've talked to John about like the idea that if you were to experience what someone else experiences, it could uh, drive you crazy. So do you want to elaborate there with your thoughts on that? Yeah, I just uh, came out of a discussion with my mates about our, our different um, emotional worlds. And, um, you know, we're all very different in how we react and respond and how we deal with our emotions in a... You know, I can imagine it would be um, probably terrifying to <laughs> to actually experience the inside of someone else's world, to be in their skin, to mm. be inside all of their senses and to be processing reality in such an alien way to the way you're used to doing it that it would be, um, <laughs> it would be possibly terrifying. And, of course, it's a very um, curly kind of question because if you were – experiencing what it was like to be another person or an animal or something uh if you were experiencing their emotional world and their psychological world would you still be you or would you cease to be you and become this other thing so it's um yes yeah what are we are we mm. just our experiences um or are we more than that and um i think um uh, we're going to discuss a few um, methods that people use to attain altered yeah. states of mm. consciousness um, that let them experience reality in a different way to the or a different place to where we normally are, mm. uh, where we're consumed by thoughts, uh, thinking, and dialogue, and plans, and the future and the past. And while we do that, we miss out. On the present, in fact, um, it's been pointed out um, by neuroscientists uh, and people who study the mind that because of the latencies, the co- uh, cognitive latencies in having a thought, actually the process of thinking takes you out of the moment. You mm. can only really um, be conscious in the present if you can uh, shut that down, shut down that thinking process and tap into a – you step back – from the chatter and tap into something else. Mm. And this is something a lot of people do. And um, Meditation. Uh, they call, yeah, they call it various things. Mindfulness. Most, yeah, meditation. Um, and in doing that, in taking that kind of step back into the present moment, back into your body, 
you're communing with the great unknowable in a way because you're uh, you're closing off the normal kind of um, architecture of your thoughts and sort of autopilot kind of responses to things. And so in doing that, you're confronted with the kind of vastness of um, your place within your own life and the uh, the expanse inside you and outside of you. Indeed. I was a child of the 60s and um, meditation was kind of a big thing back then. A lot of pop stars discovered it and went off to India and, and studied with gurus. And I can remember the, tra- the term transcendental meditation was sort of all over the place. And I can remember talking to Ruth, my sister, about meditation and we were trying to work out what it was all about. And we knew it had something to do with not thinking. But I can remember being very frustrated trying not to think because I just kept about not kept thinking about not thinking and I uh, got very frustrated and um, it took me a long time to learn that's that's one of the traps mm. in trying to uh, still the mind is to you have to uh, gain a place of equanimity with mm. your emotions um, because frustration at not being able to do it it completely Im- impedes. <laughs> That, the rousing yeah. on yourself kind of uh, stops the process from happening. So, yeah. That's the idea is to, like, observe the emotions when they come up and not be reactive to them. And then in through that observation, uh, in that watchful kind of state, who or what are you becoming when you do that? That's uh, another question, isn't it? Yeah, where are you and, and what is it? Uh, what have you tapped into there? Mm. I um, I struggled with meditation till I discovered a um, Buddhist teacher named Pema Chodron who runs a retreat in America somewhere and has written many books. Uh, she's a great writer uh, and philosophizer, and she she teaches a very uh, simple technique which just revolves around breathing and being in the moment. And it's, it was in one of her books that I read. Uh, such a simple method, and I've been practicing that method um, quite successfully for, for about 10 years now. It's amazing that it's so simple, it's so difficult to do. <laughs> mm, mm. And it gets better with practice too. Something else I've uh, often wondered about is what it would be like to be uh, an animal, like uh, a bee or a bird or a fly with all those eyes. I mean, flies have about 200 eyes. <laughs> um, what must it be like to be uh, a fruit fly that can see ultraviolet light? What kind of world <laughs> do they live in? What kind of world must it be to be like a shark or a fish that has a sensory ability to sense electrical currents in their environment? What kind of vision, what kind of reality do these animals live in? Um, it must be very different um, from ours, which is uh, has such a focus on thinking and concepts and language. Yeah, well, when I kind of, because I spend a lot of time with pets and when I look at um, cats and dogs, I guess dogs in particular, they seem to be beings that are very caught up in the moment and so they're not thinking of all these kind of reflections and introspections they don't appear to have a memory in the same way that that we do so it's all based in their sensory world and so i think that animals are very in touch with the sensory sensual reality like when you look at 
uh, a dog, well, the dog Ivy, uh, John's dog, you know, she's, when she's really blissing out and looking for tummy rubs and cuddling up, she's very much in the moment and enjoying the moment unencumbered by human thought. Yeah, I had an experience with two flies last night. Uh, they are attracted to cups of tea, my chai tea. They love it for some reason. And they're always uh, trying to drink it and they fall in. I found two flies last night and they looked like they were dead, but I pulled them out and stuck them on a tea towel. And they revived themselves after about half an hour. And they just hung around and they've been flying around me mm-hmm. for the last 24 hours, these two flies. Uh, they seem to be fearless. And I wonder if it's like that Jap- Japanese uh, idea that if you save somebody, you're responsible for them forever because you've stopped them from mm-hmm. going and joining their ancestors uh, and they become a burden. Uh, maybe those flies are my burden from now on. Perhaps, but I suppose the... Um the concession there is that they don't have a very long lifespan, so... No, and I enjoy their company. Uh, I love critters and insects. You know, some of them are, can be a bit creepy, uh, but generally speaking, uh, animals are fascinating. I've always been uh, very interested in the natural world and the animal world in particular. Mm-hmm. So, speaking of animal world, we've actually got a clip from uh, one of my favourite movies, The Leopard Man, and uh, this is a film that my grandmother went to see when she was a little girl she told me all about it i had the pleasure of watching it with her so many years after she'd first seen it and so this is a clip with um it's set in this mexican uh, border town there's a series of murders that may or may not be the result of an escaped leopard and uh there's this um eccentric historian character who um, he has some interesting philosophical things to say about the about the unknow- about the unknowable. So in the sequence, there in this nightclub, in the middle of the nightclub, is this water feature, this fountain that is the water in the fountain is pushing this little bauble into the air and holding it up. And he uses this uh, this image as an analogy. So here's the clip. So I feel rotten, nervous. I want to go out, be every place at once. Be sure that that cat doesn't hurt anyone else. It's a wild animal. Do you think a wild animal prefers walls, streets, and people when it can get into open country? Sure, sure, that's right, isn't it? Don't feel so concerned, Jerry. I've learned one thing about life. We're a good deal like that ball dancing on the fountain. We know as little about the forces that move us and move the world around us as that empty ball does. About the water that pushes it into the air lets it fall and catches it again. You shouldn't feel too bad about Teresa Delgado. So another way to think about this, these unknowable uh, unseen forces is to consider the spiritual aspect of our existence. Uh, the, the idea of body, mind and spirit is familiar to most people, I think. But what the spirit actually is, is once again a bit of a curly curly question it's kind of the glue that completes us as beings and it's practiced by a lot of people um informal religions to start with Uh, we're a christian-based society with uh, a legal system which is based on uh, christian values and a lot of people go to church uh, to surround themselves with their environment and churches are very special places (laughs) they've 
God, they smell uh, fantastic. Not all of them, but most of them. Some of them use incense, which I love. Uh, they have massive pipe organs, which are a very emotive instrument, choirs, um, and pageantry. Um, I was brought up in a in a church environment like that, and it was always a, if nothing else, it was an awesome experience to to go to one of these um, church services. And there's a theory that was posited by a man who we keep bringing up on our shows, Rupert Sheldrake. This idea of uh, baptism actually having an origin in a form of simulated or induced near-death experience where like uh so what they were doing is like actually drowning semi-drowning people and then bringing them back so they have this like earth-shattering kind of experience and they come out the other end of it and get this uh new lease on life so to speak um and so the baptism is like a, a kind of an echo of this uh you know, I mean, if you ever go to like a Greek Orthodox uh, christening, they really, uh, they really dunk those babies. It's kind of disturbing. <laughs> um, they shove them right in there and bring them out, and they're crying and everything. Yeah, in my dad's church, it was just a drop of water on the forehead, I think. But certainly, seen images of people getting dunked under the mm. water, kind of like a being born again, which is what they call it, isn't it? That's it's right, like a rebirth. Rebirth, yeah. Which we've, what was one of our episodes? Um, if you go into one of those kind of churches where they're speaking in tongues, what people are saying when they're doing that is generally not a language that you can decipher to where there's a point of reference for it. It's really like channeling some kind of unknowable force, right, John? Yeah, it's the Pentecostalists, I think they call themselves. They, um, it is like a channeling of uh, God's language or something, um, but it's a kind of a trance that they get into, and there's lots of practices um, that that use trances um, through music, through uh, different kinds of stimulation to get people into altered states, um, and there are also um, plant medicines and plants that are used. Um, by different kinds of spiritual uh, leaders, let's call them, uh, priests, shamans, uh, gurus, faith healers. The spiritual aspect of our existence is an important part of um, the treatment of health and well-being um, in past times, um, which is fairly different to today. You don't really go to your doctor for spiritual advice. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Although we do share a lot of our problems with our doctors, that's for sure. They're, they're therapists. And within all of these people that represent a kind of uh, a kind of opportunity for people to have a direct line to these great unknowable things, be they a priest or a mystic or what have you, these are people within all of these kind of practices. There is this acknowledgement of the unknowable within a lot of the tenets, the uh, belief systems, one of the th- uh, the cliches that you'll hear a lot is, well, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And I think phrases like that are an acknowledgement of the great mystery, the great unknowable in the sense that whilst there are you know certain things that, uh, certain practices and certain things that are understood, there's another aspect to it that is forever mysterious to a mortal, you know, being. 
Indeed, and um, an author that wrote uh, about this uh, mystical world and shamanism was uh, a guy named uh, Carlos Castaneda, who is an American anthropologist and wrote a whole series of books about his interest in uh, the spiritual matters and shamanism in particular. He went down to Mexico and interacted with... um, a man called Don Juan. I think his first book is called The Teachings of Don Juan. Mm. And he experienced all kinds of altered states um, when he kind of made himself an apprentice of this uh, this shaman. And this shaman, uh, he went through all kinds of crazy experiences um, and got introduced to some ideas about the natural world which were quite... Um, well, really interesting uh, ideas that um, animals and spirits, uh, sorry, animals and um, trees and plants uh, actually um, can be the conduit of uh, the spiritual realm and spiritual entities and that the, this um, unseen world is incredibly powerful um, and that life, in fact, is... Um, really a passage of negotiating these incredible forces which are invisible to most people but uh, through the practices of the shaman um, uh, he gained insight into um, these unseen forces. Yeah, these things are alive, aren't they? And you, you hear of a lot of people who've had these mystic experiences whether it is induced through um, like a, a plant uh, psychedelic like plant medicine or whether it's just through uh, other kind of practices but they'll talk about this idea of uh, the you know the forest the trees the plants the rocks having this life force and uh, a life that flows through them yeah I had uh, an experience myself when I was younger I um, did some experimentation with some psychoactive substances and um I had an experience uh, on mushrooms, which uh, was incredible. I um, I communicated with plants, <laughs> and I can't really describe. I I really don't have the words to kind of describe the experience because it was so alien to me. But uh, there was a world that I was uh, tapped into through that experience and a communion with these with these uh, well, they were beings. Uh, we don't really think of plants as as being creatures or beings, but they certainly were uh, very vividly so in in this experience, and it actually did change my... um, Up until that point, I was quite um, materialistic in my understanding of the natural world, and that was based on my scientific education. Um, I was good at science, and I went on to study science in its various forms. And, but it wasn't until I had that experience that uh, kind of changed my, my view of the world and opened up my mind to the fact that there's an incredible amount of, of um, mysterious, let's say, mysterious aspects to the natural world, which subsequently I found within the, the traditional um, scientific theories that were all taught. Because if you drill down uh, to the foundations of these theories, you'll find mystery everywhere and you know this era of the 60s when those Don Juan books I think the the first one came out in 1968 and it was a huge 
impact. It had a cultural impact that, that lasted decades, and he kept publishing books until his uh, his death in the in the late nineties. But um, an interest in this kind of these areas of inquiry was around um, earlier than that, and one of the more mainstream examples that I can think of comes from this uh, absolute gem of a TV show called One Step Beyond. And all the whole show, I think, is is on YouTube. And um, this uh, this was a series. It was a bit like a Twilight Zone type of show. Um, and But the difference being is that whereas the Twilight Zone was fiction, this show purported to be based on on real events, the uh, creator and the sort of MC narrator guy, John Newland, had this intro where he say, it's all on the human record. So there was this episode in the third season, 1961, called The Sacred Mushroom, where host John Newland, a bunch of scientists from uh, University of California, they go to Mexico, they eat psychedelic mushrooms, they have these amazing experiences, and it's all uh, investigating whether or not it induces extrasensory perception. Uh, the episode was banned. It was removed from syndication, but you can watch it in full on YouTube, One Step Beyond the Sacred Mushroom. And speaking of psychedelic mushrooms, uh, you and I went to a, a conference by the Australian Psychedelic Society uh, a few months ago where uh, some doctors presented some research they've been doing with uh, patients in palliative care. So these are people who are approaching their death they've been given an exit date more or less and this is a very scary thing to have to deal with and what they found was people get into people find this difficult and so they were using um a very controlled experiment with psychoactive uh, mushrooms to help these people uh deal with their uh their emotions and their feelings and their state of mind around their the reality of their lives, their approaching death. And I think they had very positive um, outcomes in that experiment. Death, of course, being one of the great unknowns, brings to mind a quote from Shakespeare's Hamlet, death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns. So death seems to be one of the big unknowable things in the human experience. It's something that's probably obsessed us uh, since the beginning of our time is what happens after this chapter after this life ends because we all know it ends and that's some uh, one of the things why people um, I think go to church or go to churches and consult with pre- uh, priests and probably also shamans and mm. witch doctors and all kinds of other um, gurus because we have this um, knowledge that we're going somewhere um, but we don't know where and of course there are also um, a percentage of people who believe that we don't go anywhere mm. um, the atheists well the materialists yeah. yeah the people who think that um, what you can see is all we have and this world that we've been speaking about for the last half an hour doesn't, doesn't exist it's not yeah. there um, I'm not one of those people. Uh, I see it all around me all the time. How about you, Riley? No, well, I think um, I'm, I've am i be- become someone who's not one of those people. Uh, but I think I intuitively was tuned into a great unseen world when I was a child, as I think um, a lot of kids are. And 
uh, as I've said on previous shows, like my um, spiritual education didn't come from a formal religious instruction, but I accessed a lot of it in uh, in fiction. And I want to just take the time to read out a quote here from um, a horror novella called The Great God Pan from 1898 by um, the author Arthur Machan. And um, it goes to the effect of the great those who chance to meet the great god Pan are those who are wise to know all this that all symbols are symbols of something, not of nothing. It was indeed an exquisite symbol beneath which men long ago veiled their knowledge of the most awful, most secret forces which lie at the heart of all things, forces before which the souls of men must wither and blacken as their bodies blacken under the electric current. Such forces cannot be named, cannot be spoken, cannot be imagined except under a veil, a symbol, to most of us, appearing a quaint poetic fantasy, to some a foolish tale. But you and I know something of the terror that may dwell in the secret place of life, manifested under human flesh, that which is without form, taking to itself a form. And we could go on all night on this topic, <laughs> but our time has come to an end. We'll be back in the great unknowable time of next year. See you later. You're listening to People Powered Radio, proudly supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The Community Broadcasting Foundation resources community-owned and operated media stations just like this one that connect people and tell vital local stories so that we all enjoy a more vibrant, inclusive Australian culture and healthy democracy. Find out more about our work at cbf.com.au.